Hello, you're listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. We are a general interest independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. This year, because of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had to close our store and cancel in-person events. But Skylight is your neighborhood bookstore, and we are finding ways to create community even while we're far apart. In the coming weeks, we'll be putting out lots of new audio content to help you discover new books, connect with authors, and check in with your favorite booksellers. To learn more about how you can help keep Skylight alive, please visit our website at skylightbooks.com or check out our social media accounts on Twitter and Instagram. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Hello, 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 and welcome to our latest episode of Skylit, Skylight Books podcast series where we bring you authors from all over the place to uh, speak and read to you in your room and to your headphones. Um, I'm Maddie Gobo. I'm the events manager here at Skylight Books, and today I have two guests, uh, one coming to us all the way from Oaxaca, Mexico, uh, and they are both here to talk about the, the author Jose Revueltas, um, who has a new book that's just been translated into English called Earthly Days. So our guests today are Pedro Jimenez and Matt Gleason. Welcome, guys. Thank you. And, <laughs> you're welcome. Uh, and I will read your bios so our listeners know who you are. Pedro Jimenez is an editor, translator, and essayist. He has translated Etel Adnan's Seasons into Spanish, published in Mexico by Archive 48 in 2019. He writes criticism and art reviews in English and Spanish for digital outlets and print journals. He is the founder of Archive 48, a bilingual publishing project based in San Francisco. A little bit about Archive 48. Archive 48's goal is the publication of compelling literary works in affordable editions. Like the face of Janice, Archive 48 looks north and south to bring the best of contemporary and modernist literature from Mexico and the United States across borders. Archive 48 seeks books that have not been fully recognized by the literary status quo of each country in an effort to open new conversations. Matt Gleason is a writer and translator currently based in Oaxaca. He is co-translator with Audrey Harris of The House Guest and Other Stories by Amparo Davila, which is a fantastic, spooky read. If you haven't read it, <laughs> get a copy. It's amazing. I love this collection. Uh, it was published by New Directions in 2018. His writings and translations have appeared in the Paris Review, Two Lines, California Northern, and elsewhere. He spent a decade with City Lights Booksellers and was co-editor with Giada Diano of Lawrence Ferlinghetti's Writing Across the Landscape, Travel Journals, 1960 to 2010. Earthly Days is his latest published translation. Welcome, welcome. Here we are. <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you. Awesome. Good evening. So we're going to start off with a reading today. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, we thought we'd start by, by reading actually two brief passages from the book. But first, to ground everybody in, in what this is, uh, we're, we're celebrating the release of the book uh, Earthly Days by Jose Revueltas. And it's a 
the first English translation of a novel by Rodríguez that was originally called Los Días Terrenales. And it's a book that he published in 1949, and it's actually set in 1932. But this is something that never made it into English before, even though it's, it's a very important part of Mexican literature. And um, uh, Revueltas was a lifelong Marxist militant and who was in the Mexican Communist Party for, for, well, he was in and out of it. He had a very rocky relationship with the party. And so this book has to do partly with the Communist Party in Mexico in the 1930s. Uh, it's far more than that, but most of the characters are communist militants. Um, Pedro, did you want to say anything else to, to, to set this up before we go into the reading? I mean, uh, yeah, two things that may come up later and we can go deeper into them, but maybe the first thing to say is that this is not only Revueltas' um, first translation of this book, uh, but just, I think, 2018, uh, New Directions published El Apando, uh, the whole in English. And um, so it's maybe part of a bigger Revueltas' uh, interest in general. Um, and, the, and, and the second thing that I would say is that uh, I cannot not say, uh, given today's circumstances and current political situation, that this novel is also about a conflict between an individual and individual's uh, ethical judgments and personal judgments and uh, the conflict and the tension that they come against and with uh, the judgments of the Communist Party. But I think that really represents the sort of institutional uh, um, actor or agent. So it's really a conflict between like personal consciousness, I think, and public or political uh, consciousness and they, when they really collide. Um, um, and I think that's, that would be enough for now. Great. So, um, so to, we'll, we'll talk more actually about Elapando, the whole, and, and other parts of his, of Rebopes' career. Um, for this reading, uh, I'm going to start by reading a section of chapter six from the book. And this book, uh, it has elements of a noir novel. It has elements of uh, a political novel. It, it's full of drama. It's an extremely dark book, too. Um, but it follows several sets of characters, most of whom are militants in the Communist Party. And the chapter that I'm going to read, or the, the excerpt that I'm going to read, is from a chapter in which there are two militants named Bautista and Rosendo. Bautista is a little older and more experienced. Rosendo is young and green and, and, and uh, idealistic. And they are walking across Mexico City at four in the morning, posting up propaganda. This is an era when, um, it's set in an era when it was illegal to be in the Communist Party. You could be thrown in jail for being a communist in Mexico at that time, 1932. So they're under cover of night, they're crossing the city um, in the dark, posting up propaganda, and they're crossing the city dump. Um, and as they cross the city dump, well, here's where I'll, where I'll begin. Suddenly Bautista stopped short with a muffled shout of rage. Fuck me, he nearly bellowed because he'd felt himself step on something soft and viscous among the garbage. He scraped his foot against the ground and spit another furious curse as the vile stink filled his nostrils. And it's not even an animal, he ranted to himself, trying to clean off the sole of his shoe. No, it's definitely human. He felt such rage that he wanted to punch someone. Rosendo was quite surprised by this outburst, and he paused a few steps ahead but didn't dare to inquire. Incredible, almost illusory stars shone in the sky, making him think with childish sweetness 
that this was the first night he'd ever performed an activity so dangerously attractive as pasting up propaganda in the streets. He'd performed lesser tasks before this, taking packages to the post office, handing out flyers, but tonight this was something different and full of adventure. At some other end of the city lost in darkness, perhaps Rosendo's mother was lying awake or waiting for him to come home. The thought, rather than worrying him, made him feel a peculiar kind of pleasure and pride. He would return to her like a new son and kiss her forehead with quivering gentleness, an unfamiliar kiss full of love and eloquence, the only way he could confess to her his lovely secret of life, the only way to transmit to her the calm inner light he bore inside from here forth. He didn't want to take his eyes off the distant stars. It felt like he was surrendering himself to them and gaining an unshakable belief in something very deep and true. A model comrade, an extraordinary comrade, he thought, imagining almost beatifically that someone might say this about him. Bautista knocked his foot against the ground again with a desperate rage that grew more anguished and disturbed with each passing moment. That horrible substance smearing so moistly beneath his foot. From a man, he said to himself with a repulsive feeling of nausea, from a man. This made him think about the people who dwelled in the dump, those awful shadows whose feelings always showed with the most raw and cynical starkness. Nothing more and nothing less than his fellow humans. Why would they be different from him, different from other men? creatures of our Lord. The only difference was there in the trash dump, they had no need, none whatsoever, to disguise their passions and their shame. In the other world of men, that world that presumes it's not a trash dump, moral filth and misery were hidden by the most chaste of veils, but really they were exactly the same. I'm talking like a Protestant minister, he muttered to himself. These thoughts were clearly a natural result of the soft, oozing, sticky substance he felt beneath his shoe. It was the trace that revealed an entire system of science or, epic, or ethics. Man's droppings were as good as Newton's apple as a point of departure. Universal gravitation or universal defecation. A cloud moved into the patch of sky where Rosendo was gazing at three or four glimmering stars, but it didn't dispel his fantasies, which were absolutely angelic, full of calm contentment and kindness. The cloud was like a hand, at first tinged with the distant light and then black and possessive a celestial wave that spread to cover a part of the cosmic ocean which had remained magically exposed until then and which was now plunged back again into its unfathomable realm. Beyond the visible lay the mystery of the infinite, the most beloved of all mysteries, because man will be its master once he's free. The idea made Rosendo feel a vivid excitement. He imagined the advent of a kind of promised land, at once an inconcrete sense of something very pure and crystalline, abstract feelings of sweetness, transparency of the soul, and love for his fellow people, and an image of cheerful work, optimistic and generous striving among healthy, righteous men, with Rosendo like a winged phantom looking upon it all with a smile of ineffable tenderness. Rosendo felt a hazy, almost nostalgic longing to warmly and chastely love a good and radiant comrade, a woman with whom he would cross immense fields bathed in sunlight. But just then a curse from Bautista burst like a rude projectile into his chimerical thoughts. God damn it, said Bautista loudly. And he approached Rosendo looking like he wanted to say something, but then didn't, invaded by an inexplicable feeling of despair, bitterness, and fatigue. God damn it to hell, he repeated, if it had at least been from an animal. It was as if he'd been dealt a cruel insult, but at the same time a stupid one. Cruel and stupid because it came from a human being, from cruel and stupid humanity. He was about to let loose the nastiest curses, but he stopped himself abruptly as an unexpected idea occurred to him, one that almost made him smile at the startling twist it gave to his thoughts. If I'm strictly logical about it, he thought with a sensation of relief, I shouldn't feel offended since what I stepped in is only the product of a man like me, 
a fellow man whose droppings, which are my own, shouldn't, he groped for the right word, shouldn't scandalize me. He couldn't suppress a short burst of laughter. He was having some fun, but with a certain alarming severity. And then this leads, uh, I'll, I'll explain, this leads Bautista into some more philosophical thoughts. And in the interest of time, I'm going to skip ahead to one more paragraph where he says, where he kind of culminates his thoughts with the following. If man, he thought, in a last attempted escape, instead of despising himself in others, which is the convenient thing for him to do, the cynicism of the phrase pleased him very much, if he were to end up truly despising his own individual self, surely there would be nothing for him to do but commit suicide like Christ. With this idea, he was on the brink of satisfaction. He breathed in deeply, but a miasmal taste in the atmosphere made him feel a kind of dirty, muted sadness. And so, he continued, following the thread of his thoughts, criticizing your own vices and wretchedness in others, seeing the moat in someone else's eye and not the beam in your own, loathing the shit I stepped in just because it belongs to a fellow man and not to myself or an animal, is nothing but an honorable principle of preservation, preservation of the individual, of the family, of society, of the state, and thus of all humanity. That is to say, it's an ethical principle whose foundations rest in the pristine, aseptic empire of beloved excrement. He paused. I defecate, therefore I am, he concluded with a smile. Wow. <laughs> Outstanding. Uh, Makes me wonder yeah. if what that's had those after stepping into anyway. <laughs> yeah. Um I'll just say that last night when we were uh talking about deciding which paragraph to read. Uh, we we had both thought about this passage because it's um, you know it's central to the novel in many ways, but it's it's amazing. You know, it's it's funny too. And then I think we're going to read one other passage to give a sense. It's a very sprawling book with many. He does many different things in this book. You know, just when you think you have it figured out, Rotas goes somewhere else entirely. So Pedro, you were going to read a part in Spanish, right? Yeah, uh, so we thought about doing maybe a shorter reading so we don't get some listeners tired. Uh, but it'll be maybe one, one, one way of introducing it would be to say that in a way, I feel like every chapter in the book, it's almost like a short story in itself. But this one in particular, it's a very different chapter because this is chapter seven and chapter one through six, they're almost built in a geometrical way so that they coincide and they have the same characters and and one is inside and then this one is outside but this one number seven really just kind of implodes and it introduces characters that haven't been introduced before and the main character that has been introduced here is jorge ramos and he's an architect in mexico city um he's kind of an older guy and part of the maybe maybe upper middle class of mexico city um he, he, he is definitely the uh, petit bourgeois uh, uh, kind of character in the, in the book. He's not a militant. He's not a young militant like Rosendo and Bautista and other characters in the book. So I think that's interesting. And one thing to note, and I think this is partly why uh, we chose this passage, is that Jorge Ramos' initials are the same as Jose Revuelta. Um, so I, I think there may be interesting thoughts there, you know, about what he's trying to do here. And so anyways, uh, it, Ramos is introducing to the book because it's in his house where the Communist Party members meet uh, because they think that the police, and per 
probably right, though, uh, are not going to go look for them there. It's an upper middle class neighborhood in Mexico City, probably La Roma, La Condesa. Um, maybe if we do some research, uh, we can find out exactly what Revueltas was thinking. And, uh, and he's also kind of an esteem. And he is in the midst of writing this article, which interestingly, very interestingly, is criticizing Diego Rivera and Siqueiros nationalistic mural painting movement. Um, and and he, he, he's, he's writing this article for this uh, magazine and he wants to criticize it, this movement. And, and, and bear in mind that Revueltas is a Communist Party member himself and that he's been in trouble with the Stalinist side of the party uh, represented by Siqueiros. And Diego Rivera was a, a Trotskyite. And uh, so anyways, uh, in the midst of this uh, writing of the article, and he describes some objects in his office, some pre-Hispanic uh, beautiful fi figurines that he has, um, he, um, he's looking outside his window, and, 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 and then I'll, I'll, I'll write, uh, uh, sorry, I'll read a couple of passages for you. Ramos descansó la mirada primero en las azoteas próximas, a un nivel más bajo que la terraza del estudio. Enseguida en los edificios distantes y luego en el fondo, firme y oscuro contra el cielo, de las montañas gruñidas por una sorprendente luz, las montañas, la ciudad, la luz. Todo eso era la vida. Pero su mayor encanto, sorprender en secreto esa vida desde aquí, desde el Olimpo como un dios escondido, como espía de la divinidad. Desde la altura de la terraza, Ramos sentía su propia omnividencia mágica e impune, esa deleitosa facultad de no ser visto, de filtrarse en las biografías ajenas como un alegre demonio. Casas, azoteas, balcones, transeúntes, pájaros. Allá, por entre las cortinas de su alcoba, la mujer que se mira en el espejo sonríe, se vuelve, habla con su soledad. Se hace ofrecer mil clases de aventuras y luego toma la cabeza entre las manos, en la actitud de una tarjeta postal. Así, semidesnuda, los codos hacia arriba, es de una gracia infinita, pero de pronto se deshiela, parece tomar una decisión y con ambas manos hace girar la cabeza sobre su propio eje unas 24 veces, con la cabeza de un maniquí. Se la arranca con suavidad, como quien se desprende una espina de pescado de la dentadura, y luego la coloca bajo su axila. Igual al guerrero que se quita el casco, sonriendo, atrozmente sonriente, sin que la decapitación, empero, haya dejado una sola gota de sangre en el punto donde el cuello fue separado del tronco. El pañuelo que pasa por la calle despidiéndose de alguien y de súbito llora a pañuelo vivo, porque alguien no está en la ventana. El cartero triste, un poco soñador y otro decepcionado, que después de doblarlo cuidadosamente en cuatro, arroja en el buzón, sin miedo, pero tampoco sin que sus pies toquen ninguna superficie, el cuerpo de un fantasma verde que exclama, he muerto, he muerto, he muerto. Las azoteas. Dos senos pendientes del tendedero. 
una sábana completamente nupcial que se agita en el aire. Actually, you might want to say something about the head mat. Hmm. Well, let me. I'll I'll read the same passage in English translation now, for those who don't speak Spanish. Ramos rested his gaze first on the nearby rooftop, which lay below the terrace of his study, then on the distant buildings, and finally on the backdrop of the mountains, firm and dark against the sky, burnished by an uncanny light. The mountains, the city, the light—all this was life. But the greatest delight was to secretly observe that light from here, from this Olympus, like a hidden god, like a spy of divinity. From the height of the terrace, Ramos felt his own magical omniscience and impunity, that delicious power to not be seen, to slip into others' biography as like a merry demon. Houses, rooftops, balconies, passers-by, birds. There, through her bedroom curtains, the woman looking at herself in the mirror smiles, turns, speaks with her solitude, imagines a thousand kinds of adventures offered to her, then holds her head in her hand in a posture out of a postcard. Half naked, her elbows pointing up, she has an infinite grace, but suddenly her pose thaws. She seems to make a decision, and using both hands, she turns her head on its axis some 24 times, as if it were a mannequin's head, and pulls it off as smoothly as someone extracting a fishbone from between their teeth. And then she puts it beneath her arm, like a warrior removing a helmet, and smiles, smiles atrociously. Yet this decapitation doesn't leave a single drop of blood where her neck separated from her torso. A handkerchief goes along the street, saying goodbye to someone, and suddenly weeps, with a flutter of emotion, because someone isn't there at the window. The sad mailman, both dreamy and disillusioned, fearlessly, and with his feet floating above the ground, tosses into the mailbox, after folding it carefully in four, the body of a green ghost that exclaims, I'm dead, I'm dead, I'm dead. The rooftops, two breasts hanging from the clothesline, a thoroughly nuptial bedsheet waving in the air. There we are. Yeah. I like how those two readings uh, pair together. So the first one, we're down in the muck, and the second one, we're mm -hmm. up on the high, high peak of Olympus. You're right, you're right. Uh, uh, and, and it's a feature of the book that Revueltas passes from one place to another and gives this, this like very, very vast panoramic sprawling view of, of Mexico at the time. I'm glad you pointed that out. Yeah, me too, and I never thought about it and we didn't plan it for that, but it's true. The first one is, it's in the same city. Um, uh, Revueltas was not born in Mexico City, but was I think one of the best describers and perhaps lovers of Mexico City, but the first passage occurs in the outskirts of the city, uh, uh, you know, amongst the shit and the trash and where there's no civilization. And, and it's almost like this forgotten dead zone. And there's other parts of that chapter where they find things in the midst of all this small anti-utopian. And then this other one is a completely different atmosphere. You're right, it's up in a, in a, in a building in Mexico City and he's looking down on other people's terraces and lives as some kind of demigod. Um, and there's some, you know, voyeurism that later in the chapter is thoroughly explored. Um, and, and, you know, it, it's, 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 it's a book of contrast, I think, as, I think structurally, as Matt was pointing out, uh, 
the characters, the pairs, the, the, the acting pairs. Um, and then the, like, like I was saying before, there are scenes, you can, you can almost build mathematically that happen inside and outside. Uh, some of it is in rural Mexico in the state of Puebla. Some of it is in Mexico City. So yeah, it is, this is the kind of contrast that he builds upon all the time, I think. Mm -hmm. And so after reading these, we wanted to actually talk a little yeah. bit about Jose Revoltas is because he is, uh, I, think this, I think this is really important. It's, he's largely unknown in the United States, even though he's extremely important in Mexico. So he's important as a kind of underground countercultural author um, because he was a political, uh, because he was a political radical, according to some definitions, right? Um, but what's interesting is up until 2018, only one of, of his many novels had ever been published in English. And it's uh, one called El Luto Humano, which is from the early 1940s and won a prize and is one of his more well-known early novels. And it was published twice under two different, uh, once in the 1940s in English and once in the 2000s. Um, but it didn't seem to make much of a, uh, much of a splash in the U.S. And then in 2018, um, New Directions published El Apando, uh, translated as The Whole, um, which was translated by Amanda Hopkinson and uh, Sophie Hughes. And I definitely recommend it. Um, I recommend people go out and read that book. El Apando was written near the end of Revueltas' career. In um, but I, the late 60s, early 70s. And it's, his, it's probably his most famous book. It's his most read book. It's, it's a short book, um, but very, very dense. It's all one paragraph, actually. And it's very remarkable. And it's a book that, that's about prisons. And it talks about, it deals with prisoners, it deals with prison guards, and it uh, deals with things going on in a prison in Mexico. And it proposes all of society as a kind of prison, in a way. And this theme of prisons is very important for Revueltas because from the time he was 18 to the time he was in his 50s, he went to prison multiple times. And he, he had been to various prisons in, uh, in Mexico. Um, so, and this was because he was a Marxist militant, you know, and he was a member of the Communist Party. He was in and out of the Communist Party. He joined other parties. He, he rejoined the Communist Party. He got kicked out twice in his life, you know. He, he, was, he was also, because he was a very contrarian person. Um, and he had this, career as a writer that was just immense and enormous. Um, he, he wrote a lot of novels. He wrote a lot of short stories. He also wrote a ton of journalism. And he was always traveling all over the world from Peru to, um, to, to Cuba after the revolution to write journalism or give conferences. He um, was also a philosopher and he wrote political theory. Um, he actually has a, he has a book called um, uh, with the proletariado sin cabeza, uh, what's the full title, Pedro? Ensayo sobre un proletariado sin cabeza, right? Ensayo sobre un proletariado sin cabeza, exactly. Ensayo about a proletariat without a head, right? Which is, which is actually a very important piece of like Marxist political criticism in Mexico. He also wrote screenplays for, during the golden age of Mexican cinema for like 10 or 20 years, and a lot of these more noir films for in the 1940s, 1950s for directors like Roberto Gavaldon. Um, so he was all over the place. He had this crazy work ethic. He was constantly working. He was constantly in poverty. And he did all these amazing things. Um, but when he was, he was young, he, he joined the Communist Party when he was, before he was 18. You know, he, mm -hmm. 
he, he was from this family that was full of artists. His, his brother Fermín Revoltas was uh, a famous painter. His brother, uh, his sister Rosaura was a famous actress. Like there are, there were just, he had all these siblings who, who did equally amazing things. Um, but he was definitely this very, he, a very fiery personality to begin with. And though they grew up in Colonia Roma, um, he was born in Durango, but he grew up in Colonia Roma uh, in Mexico City. And he was fascinated by the sort of grittier parts of the city. And uh, he was, and he joined the Communist Party very early. And when he was 18, he was thrown in prison for it because it was illegal to be a communist. And he, it's actually this crazy story that, that, that he talks about where Revueltas goes to help organize in a little town called, uh, I think it's called El Camarón in Nuevo León. Camarón. And, and because he's, he's an organizer, the police pick him up along with a couple other comrades and they actually like drive them around the country for like a week, for days and days so that their, their party comrades can't find them. First, they drive them all the way to the Gulf, to the Gulf Coast, right? To, to the Gulf of Mexico. And then they drive them and, and then they drive them all the way to the Pacific coast. They like cross the country several times and stay one night in one jail, one, one night in another jail, just so that his communist comrades can't find him and help him. And then they ship him off to the Islas Marias, which are the prison islands um, in, the, in the Pacific Ocean. And people are sent there, especially political prisoners, to do hard labor. And I mean, it's like, you know, they're bigger islands than Alcatraz, and, but they're also way farther away from the mainland. There's not really a good way to escape. So before he's like 25, I think he, he ends up going to the Islas Marias twice and staying several months there each time, doing hard labor. Um, and then later in his life, after all of this political tumult and so on, when 1968 comes along and there's a huge student movement in Mexico City, he joins it. And he's 54 at the time. He's way older than all the students participating in it. Um, but he joins it, and um, after the movement is essentially suppressed with the Plata Local Massacre, he's thrown in prison again for, as, as a political prisoner. And it's supposedly a pretrial detention center, but uh, he stays there a couple years in a very famous prison called Lecumber. And that's where he writes the book Elefando for the whole. Um, so that's sort, of, that's sort of context where he's coming from. And so Earthly Days, Los Dias Renales, this, this book here is something he wrote in, in, in 1949, it's an earlier part of his career, but it's a very crucial part of his career. And it's 20 years before he wrote Filipino. I want to let Pedro now move on and, and, and add a little more to that. Well, I think it was very good and fair. I don't want to, I don't know, uh, maybe I'll repeat it a little bit, but, uh, or make some emphasis in different things. But yeah, I think he gave a really good uh, summary of sort of the main points of Revueltas. Um, I don't know, I'll begin by saying he was born in 1914, which is the same year that Octavio Paz was born in Efraín Huerta. And they're called the members of the generation of Taller. And, and um, he was an autodidact. He, I think he might have finished, you know, seventh grade or something like that, but that was it. Uh, his father, I think, came into some economic uh, downfall or something. So he was enrolled in the German school in Mexico City. Uh, but then he had to go to public school. Uh, one very important part of his life, especially there and then, was that his father died when he was very young. So his older brother, Silvestre Revueltas, who was an extremely famous Mexican music composer, uh, 
became this sort of father figure. And Silvestre was very involved in the Communist Party in Mexico City. And something that we talked about briefly uh, the other day, Matt and I, was that Mexico City was kind of a hotbed for uh, communists at that time. And you could find from, you know, uh, Victor Sert, uh, uh, the, the, the Russian communist, uh, you know, to Trotsky. And, and also we were saying this, George Oppen, the, the, you know, the great American poet was living in Mexico City too. So Revueltas grew up in this environment with communism, perhaps unlike today, both in Mexico and the United States, was a real thing. And people were actually giving their lives to that. And so very early on, as, what, as Matt was saying, I think he was thrown into jail for the first time he was 14. Um, then he went, I think he ended up being in jail four times, the second one when he was 18. And um, his two other, uh, he has more siblings, but he has two other very famous siblings in Mexico. His uh, other brother, uh, Fermín Revueltas, is usually called the fifth muralist in Mexico. Uh, he died very young, uh, but he's also a great artist. And then I think also Matt mentioned Rosaura Revueltas. She's an actress and a dancer and a performer. And she actually toured with Bertolt Brecht uh, in Europe. And, 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 and um, this connects Revueltas to something that Matt was also talking about, which is his uh, career in film. He spent tw 10 or 12 years working with Roberto Gavaldon and even with Luis Buñuel, uh, Un Tranvía Llamado Deseo, which is kind of an odd to Mexico City. It's about two guys um, driving a um, cable car of sorts at night in Mexico City. Uh, and Luis Buñuel directed that, and José Revueltas wrote the, 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 the script. And, and in the midst of all this, he was a very active member of the Communist Party. Uh, he was a critic of Stalinism from the get-go. Uh, he later became a serious and full-time devoted Marxist uh, theorist. And, and he wrote throughout his life, I mean, volumes on Marxist uh, theory. Um, he even founded uh, La Liga Espartaco, uh, which is a, a, a movement within the Marxist, uh, uh, excuse me, within the Communist uh, Party in Mexico uh, that follows uh, um, Trotsky uh, a bit and is inspired in the, 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 the liberation of the slaves in Rome by Spartacus. And he became hated by the elites of the Mexican Communist Party because of that. And he was always a contrarian, as Matt was saying. Um, amazingly enough, in the midst of all this, and in the midst of him being a journalist and a very social person, he was friends with Octavio Paz and with all the elites, although he's kind of a weird guy because he was hanging out with people who were going to jail and people who were criticizing the Mexican state. Uh, in the midst of all this, he managed to write plays. Uh, he managed to write great novels, and we haven't talked about but great short stories. Um, so this is just kind of... Um, I, would, I, I wanted to begin with this, but I'll end with this. I think that Jose Revueltas is in many ways um, the best that Mexico could have given at that time and at that period. He's, he's such a wide character. He, he, he's part of the, 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 the communists and the uh, labor unions in the 30s, and as Matt was saying in Nuevo Leon in, the, in one of the strikes in Camarón, he, um, he gets thrown into jail. Uh, Cristina Rivera Garza, the Mexican writer, is writing about that because her parents are from that area. And there were workers and they might have been in the same 
protest as Angela Vueltas was helping to lead and then because of that go into jail. Um, then he's back into the golden era of cinema in Mexico and, and, and works with all these golden stars and is part of this uh, industry. He's also part of journalism. Uh, but then he goes all the way back to 1968 and, 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 and helps uh, the, the student movement. Um, and, and after that, he keeps on writing and in jail writes El Apando, um, which is, I agree, I think it's a great novel. Uh, novella, it's kind of short, 60, 70 pages, one paragraph. And, and I would even add that in today's conversations about biopower and how our lives are being controlled and sort of the symbol of jails and being restricted and being surveilled. Uh, you can think of Foucault and Agamben. I think Revueltas' work is one that from the beginning till the end explores uh, this sort of human condition that not only he can beautifully talk about, but that he himself, unlike many other writers, experienced since he was 14 until he was 56 or 58. And that made him suffer physically and from his health, because as Matt was saying, Lecumberri was a very famous prisoner in Mexico City. And if you got thrown in there, um, uh, you know, uh, it, it was dangerous. It was, it was, it was, it, it was, it was not nice. Um, his daughter Andrea Revueltas remembers in one of the one one of one of her books about her father that he would wake up every night screaming and yelling uh, because of nightmares that he had from 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 the four times that he was in jail. So you know this is this is Jose this is who Jose Revueltas is. It is, um, and in this entirely dramatic career that he has. I think that this book, Los Dias Terrenales, Earthly Days, probably wins the prize for being for having the most dramatic for being the most dramatic and controversial book that he wrote, because um, it caused huge problems with his comrades on the left. Um, he wrote this book in the 1940s, and he started. I mean, he says in his letters that he starts writing it when he's on this trip to Peru in 1943. He, which was the same year he'd been booted out of the Communist Party for supposed for what they called factionalism, which essentially may have been not being doctrinaire enough. And uh, but he doesn't publish the book until 1949. It takes him a long time to write, and he just throws all these doubts that he has about the Communist Party into this book. But not just that, he throws all these doubts he has about human nature and human life, and like what it's all about, and whether human beings are like filthy and base or whether they have some nobility in them, right? Like all these things he's, he's wrestling with. Um, he, he throws it all into this book and he publishes it and, and, he's, and he's very proud of it. And his party comrades or his comrades all over the left just lambast him. They hate the book and they, they attack him savagely, you know, because in this book he criticizes the party. And he sets it in, in, the 19th, in the early 1930s when the Communist Party is illegal and when there's a lot of um, uh, paranoia going on among the communists, right? And, there, and he portrays certain people as being sort of, he calls them the priests of the party because they just follow orthodox doctrine and they stamp down anyone, anyone else who doesn't. And they, in this, he dramatizes these characters losing their humanity in these really... Um, frightful and disturbing ways, actually, uh, which, which I'll let you read the book to find out 
what he says specifically um, and what these dramatic situations are. But he makes this criticism of certain people who are part of the Orthodox party. And so everybody on the left just attacks him. Um, they say they hate it. And of course, no one on the right, on the political right, even reads the book or, or attention to it. And it gets to the point where um, he, it's, it's ruining his, his political it's ruining his friendship. Even Pablo Neruda just lambasts this book. And earlier, when, when Revueltas wrote things that were a little more, um, they weren't party propaganda necessarily, but they were novels that went, that were a little closer to the party line that, that fit it better. Pablo Neruda loved him, the young Revueltas. And now with this book, he says, I used to know, he, he says, I'm paraphrasing him, this isn't, this isn't exact, but he says more or less, I used to know this like wonderful, you know, promising young writer named Revueltas, this doesn't seem to be the same guy. There's this venom stagnating in the veins of this writer, you know? So Pablo Neruda throws him under the bus, you know, and, and kicks him while he's down, basically. Um, at the same time, Revueltas put out a play called El, Cuadra El Cuadrante de la Soledad, which was similarly critical, and it was also just savagely attacked. And so this becomes so bad that in 1950, Revueltas gives in, and he issues an apology, and he says, Actually, the criticisms are right. Uh, this book is full of errors. Uh, I need to rectify the errors in my own self, you know. And and he withdraws it from circulation. He actually says, "I don't, I don't want the publisher to even circulate this book at all." And he closes down the play, El Cuadrante de la Soledad. And so, literally, this book, other than the people who've managed to buy it in the first six months it was out, this book doesn't exist more essentially for 15 years uh, until in the mid 60s his his complete works come out and it's republished. And Revueltas basically, basically he, he, he withdraws his book from, from circulation and he apologizes in order to make up and like restore his, his political connection. And a few years later, he goes on apologizing and finally like officially rejoins the communist party, but still has a rocky relationship and then later leaves or is kicked out again and, and, and so on. But so this book, there was a period when it didn't exist because it angered everyone on the left so much. And the reason is, even though it's set in the 30s, he was dealing in the 1940s at the time he wrote it with this malignant kind of Stalinism that was in the party. And he was writing against essentially the Stalinist Communist Party. And the, and the Stalinist Communist Party came down on him hard. Yeah. Um, I mean, I would only, you know, continue to sort of right away you were saying, I think it's, this is a unique case in Mexican literature. I don't think of any other book uh, where the writer, some sort of either religious or political uh, uh, change of heart, besides, especially, you know, the level of this kind of a writer as Matt was saying, he was already famous. He won a couple of prizes for his novels. He was well known. Uh, he was part of the, of kind of the, you know, the elite, uh, the cultural leader of Mexico. And then, uh, as Matt was saying, decides to, to, to withdraw the book and asks uh, the publisher to please buy back the book and, and, and it didn't see the light of, of, of day for a long time. Um, interesting too is that in an interview later in his life, Revuelta said that if he could give a title to his complete works or to his oeuvre, it would be Earthly Days, Los Dias Terrenales. And I think many critics from the beginning have thought that this is his strongest work. And, and I think it is. And um, one thing that I'll say that um, 
the in, in the context of the neglect and the attacks on the novel is that the right uh, or the conservative uh, critics were m much less harsher and did pay some attention to the novel. Ali Chumacero uh, wrote in, in, I'm also paraphrasing, but said something in, along the lines of saying that this novel had reaffirmed in him the belief that a novel could also be an art form. Uh, and the very famous uh, uh, chronicler of Mexico City, Salvador Novo, uh, uh, also spoke highly of the book. So it's even that is so um, uh, counterintuitive about the book. The, the, the left savaged the book, condemned the book, and did everything that they could to uh, um, pressure Revueltas to, to, to disown the book. It got to the point where, like Matt was saying, from Chile, Pablo Revueltas wrote this horrible letter because it, it said things like, um, I'm also paraphrasing, but the Revueltas comes from one of the best families in Mexico, one, one of the families that are most attuned to the new movements in Latin America. And, and he had a great book before, but this just, it, he says something almost, I think in terms of blood, like he just disowned his own blood or something like that. So in Revueltas, um, um, almost, I think, in, in a spiritual theological problem. Uh, um, you know, I, I grew up Catholic and, and, uh, um, in, in, a very, in a very conservative, very Catholic environment. And, and I could see some Catholic writers giving way to what the Vatican says about, you know, what you're writing. Uh, like George Bernanos, for instance, you know. Uh, um, and, and, and I think Revueltas in a different setting is feeling the same sort of structural pressures, you know, when you come from a very, very thick uh, cultural milieu and, and when all your relationships and all your friends and everything you devoted to is this sort of community and this cause, I, they, they broke him and he gave in. And, and, and it's one of the only times in his life, I mean, mind you, this is a guy who went to jail four times. This is a guy who's not afraid of, of authorities or the police or being thrown in jail or being, you know, tortured, but I think the pressure was so much on him uh, that he just, maybe he disappointed some people that he loved. You know, I think it became very personal for him. And, and he withdrew the book. And as Matt was saying, for 14, 15 years, uh, it, it didn't come out again. And when it came out, people were not only thinking, oh my God, were we wrong about, you know, his character, but about the, 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 the worth of the book itself. It's I I'm, I I am I have no qualms in saying the following. I think Earthly Days is one of the top novels written in 20th century Mexico, and so. And so to to follow up on that, um, sort of in because now we're getting into the theme of of what does it mean to read this book today? You know, we're talking yeah. about yeah, go yeah. in the 20th century. We're talking about yeah. you know a book written. Uh, 70 years ago, right? And, and so I have three or four things to say about that. One is that this book, we've, there, are a lot of, there's, there are a lot of very dramatic political events that occurred around it. And it is perhaps one of his most political books, right? In the whole, Elefando, he doesn't really talk about his communism. Here he does. But at the same time, I don't, I don't want listeners here to think that this is a strictly political book. It is, it's something he put a lot of 
literary art into. Um, its style is very intense, baroque, dense. Like he was, he he just he pulled out the stops with this with with this um, very very ornate style in Spanish that, that he was developing. And this is the book where it really like comes to fruition, I think. Uh, it also is just full of all kinds of dramas that have nothing to do with, with uh, communism or, or openly political questions that one could say that everything is political. Everything from unfaithfulness, jealousy in relationships, uh, um, critiques of toxic masculinity, I would say. I, that's, that's essentially the vocabulary we'd use for it today, and there are some very intense cr critiques of that in this book. Um, police violence and prison do feature very powerfully in this book, too. Um, and, and simply, like, human, human relationships and our relationship with memories and, 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 and with other people, you know. Um, but as far as the... This question, I, I, I really like what Pedro was saying about how a nuancing a bit of this question of Revueltas apologizing and withdrawing this book from circulation, saying that maybe he hurt some people he didn't want to hurt and so on. Because it's very easy at this point in history to say, oh, Revueltas was right and the Stalinists were wrong. They shouldn't have censored this. But I want to re-dramatize that question because, and just say, imagine you're in a period of time the 30s and 40s, when you're, when you're seeing fascism rise around the world, when you're seeing a brute exercise of power rising around the world that, that exploits people, that murders people, that thingifies people, to use Martin Luther King Jr.'s words, um, and, and you see it growing, and you're fighting for your life against it, and you're trying to help other people fight for their lives against it. That may feel familiar to, to many people who are listening today, right? And let's say then, seeing this fascism rise around the world, you're part of an organization that is fighting against that fascism, but you think it is, um, you think that your organization has flaws, right? And you think those flaws are maybe weakening it in front of fascism. What do you do? You know, do you criticize it? Uh, and if you do criticize it and everyone comes down on you, then how do you react, right? Do you, if, if you criticize your own organization, which is weaker maybe than the fascist organization, than, than, than the wave of fascism, are you, are you hurting your side? Are you hurting your organization? Are you making it harder? Are, are you wasting energy on infighting, you know? Are you wasting energy in making it harder to fight what you really need to fight? Or are you helping strengthen your organization and even preventing it from entering into a kind of tyranny that might be almost as bad as what you're fighting against. Um, what I, you know, and then what's the right venue if you do criticize it? Is it a novel? Because maybe you're also in doubt about everything, what this whole process of living is, what, what, what human nature is, and, and you don't have answers, and you need to doubt it all. What's the right venue for that, and should you do it? And honestly, I don't have answers to that. And Revueltas didn't, like had to negotiate that without having clear answers. And, and it's a really difficult question, you know? Um, two other things I wanted to say to, before, before I close my part and let Pedro finish out. Um, an interesting thing about Revueltas is, uh, from the, I grew up in Los Angeles and I was born in 1979. I actually grew up about my, for the first five years of my life, I was about five blocks from Marshall High. So I was right around the corner from where Skylight is now. So it didn't exist then. And, um, <laughs> 
So I grew up in the Reagan 80s. And I remember communism was not treated like a political ideology. It was treated like this, like, like there, it wasn't taken seriously and it still kind of isn't. Communism was this weird enemy ethnicity or identity, the commies, right? And there was no sense that it was a set of political ideas that might have some bearing at all on, on the political discussion, right? It was just the commies. They were, it was like, really, it was like a weird enemy ethnicity. And, and so, for people who grew up in Cold War, uh, in the Cold War United States, like me, and especially in the Reagan years, um, it can be revelatory to read writers such as Victor Serge or the Soviet writer Andrei Platonov. Both of them have been republished in, Eng in English translation in recent years by New York Review of Books. Victor Serge, because you read him and say, oh, that's that's what it was like just after the Rus Russian Revolution. That's what it was like during World War II. That's what intelligent people were, those are the debates intelligent people were having in uh, newly Soviet Russia, you know, and between anarchists and communists and between Stalinists and Trotskyists and so on, and with intelligence on both sides, right? Uh, but even, even if your morals or ethics might be with one side or another. But you see like, oh, maybe that's how people had these had these debates and what they felt and lived and these horrible things they lived. And with Platonov, you see like, oh, that's what young people in Soviet Russia, maybe that's the hope, the romantic hope they saw and felt in communism and also the criticism he had of it, right? And it's very revelatory when you grow up not taking these things seriously at all. And I think Revueltas can be, and especially this book, can be revelatory in a similar way. So like things that we're just blind to and don't know about. Mexico, uh, corners of Mexican society and Mexican communism too. And lastly, I'll say, I don't want to give anything away in the book, but I'll say that it comes to a climax that's very intense, that to me deals very disturbingly with something that very much has to do with the way Trumpist Republicans and others weaponize a sense of their own victimization. And I, and it has very disturbing echoes for me. I don't want to say more than that. Um, yeah. Thank you for that. That was amazing. Uh, I'm, I'm curious about the last thing, so maybe we can talk about it later. I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah. Maybe I'm suspecting what you're saying, but I don't know. Um, I don't know, there's so much to say. I mean, I think this book has, I have a friend of mine, Arturo Davila, who wrote the back cover. He's a poet and, uh, Professor of literature here in the Bay Area. He's also Mexican, Mexico City, went to Berkeley, another Bay Area, Mexico, LA, California kind of connection. And he's saying, and I think I mentioned that every chapter of this book is, is like a short story. It's a complete perfect circled short story. And there are people who have said that, you know, some things in, in, in Juan Rulfo can be sometimes picked from some, you know, Revueltas' themes. Um, th there's a death. Uh, a very um, crucial death early in the book. The people say that anticipates uh, things in Julio Cortázar, um, Rayuela, and um, it's also, as we've been saying, Revueltas was a serious uh, philosopher. He spent all his life reading Marx and Hegel. And, and, and it's kind of an essayism about the novel too. It's, it's kind of like, um, the men without qualities a bit, maybe Proustian sometimes too. Uh, it has this 
all these uh, philosophical ideas that are being thrown out there by some of the characters, which is really interesting. And and then finally, like 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 Matt was saying, um, there is there are political things in the novel, I think, that are are still today with us. For instance, I'll say a few things. Uh, there's a theme of identifying a kind of religiousness, a kind of like orthodoxy in terms of descriptions that use theological terms to criticize uh, the communist Mexican party. And, and, and if you read your, your Marx, you know that the early Marx of the philosophical manuscripts in 48, 1845, 1846, says very famously that the beginning of any uh, economic and political critique is theological critique. And, and, and the whole novel also, it's dressed in this uh, very interesting, I think, philosophical and theoretical problem between religion and politics that I think comes back today. It came back back then and it will be with us in the future. And so, you know, it's like you could read it in this way about it. You can read this other way. There's so many layers that I think you can, you can, you, you can uh, sort of get an enter into the novel. And then one thing I would say about today, and, and maybe more from the Mexican perspective, is that not only is Revueltas in the midst of this in-depth but family-like feud with fellow communists, his own family, but there is an unfinished and very old debate in Mexico about the Mexican Revolution. Did the Mexican Revolution ever happen? Was there a Mexican Revolution? Did the Mexican Revolution was sort of colonized by, 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 by this political system, by political parties, famous at PRI? And, and, and Revueltas wrote in, in, in many of his essays that he thinks that uh, the Mexican Revolution never happened, that, that it, it didn't exist. And, and this novel too is taking aim in, in some swipes at that too. Uh, it's located in the south of Mexico City in the state of Puebla. And that's called uh, the Magonista Territory. Uh, Los Hermanos Flores Magón, the Flores Magón brothers, which, by the way, were jailed and died in California, they were anarchists. And people don't know this because we've been fed this sort of state institutional story about the Mexican Revolution. But the Mexican Revolution was originated by anarchists. And, 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 and by unions. And, 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 and one amazing part of the novel in chapter three, when he's describing the office where this militants in Mexico City are working, he goes on without any sort of narrative need for it, by the way, or any philosophical need for it, and says that there are two uh, things hanging on the wall, one of which is a calendar that I think is celebrating the 14th or 16th anniversary of the Bolshevik Revolution. Uh, and the second one is an image of Flores Magón. And I think that today in Mexico, uh, I won't go into this, but given the political circumstances, and I also think around the world where democratic options do not seem either democratic or an option, the role and, uh, of anarchism in, 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 in our political possibilities and in the political possibilities of Revueltas in the 30s, I think are very similar. I, I guess what I'm saying is that the 30s seem very much like the time today. We are in that sort of uh, in between, you know, there's, we can no longer believe in the illusions of the Pascal, like the Weimar Republic or something like that. 
uh, and we are facing the fascists. And this is a conflict where Revueltas is in, in the midst of it. And he's personally in the conflict. He's intellectually in the conflict. And he's historically in the conflict saying, there are these other options, which is sort of anarchist option. And, and, and we, 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 we don't have to go these other uh, routes, you know, this communist party, which is becoming, you know, Stalin-like all the time. And, 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 and so I think amazingly, this novel manages to thread all these different aspects from the historical to the philosophical, to the literary, to the personal, to the biographical. Uh, and I'll end with this. Uh, Revueltas himself has acknowledged that uh, the setting in, in this Magonista anarchist area of South of Mexico City was based in his own experiences when he was young and he when he was working with some of the anarchist movements uh, uh, down in Mexico, not only in the North, as Matt was saying, with some of the um, problems with the maquiladoras, which, and maybe I'll finish with this. Uh, there was a Mexican lawyer uh, who defended a maquiladora workers in, in the state of uh, in Tamaulipas, in the city of Matamoros, who has been apprehended by the state authorities because he's defending workers that are being um, unjustly exploited. And so this is exactly where Revueltas was at a few years ago. It seems like we haven't moved at all. Uh, so I think that's why this is a very relevant and timely uh, book. Well said. Thank you both. Uh, this has been a, like an education in, you know, 30, 40 minutes. <laughs> I feel like I've learned so uh, much. Yeah. Actually, an hour. Sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> Good. So, did uh, we want to end with a final yeah. reading? Um, yeah, we could, but also, you know, we've gone for an hour. I don't know. Do you want to? Do you want to just leave it at this and let and let people pick up the book and read it themselves? I'm I'm down to listen to more. That prose is fantastic. I I want to hear more. <laughs> if you guys don't mind. All right. <laughs> no, I don't sure. know. Yeah. Great. We'll end By the way, I don't know if we can. I don't know if we can edit this, but uh, I want to uh, thank Matt uh, in public or uh -huh. if we can edit it. It's not the state of Puebla, but it's in Veracruz. But I do think that some of the reference that he's making to some of the military uh, anarchists, their work was in Puebla. But anyways, we can, you know, throw that out later. <laughs> thank you. Flores Magón was from Oaxaca. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. So what do you want to do? Do so you we're want gonna to read the English part? Or both? Um, Sure, sure. We're going to end by reading the beginning. <laughs> and uh, this is a book that it begins uniquely and a bit confusingly. Shall I read, Pedro? Yeah, uh, I think you should start and then close in Spanish. Is that, does that make sense? I should start with what? You go first. And then I can close in Spanish. Fantastic. Okay. Chapter one. In the beginning had been chaos, but all at once the agonizing spell was broken and life arose. Atrocious human life. It must be around four, replied the voice of one of the caciques. We have plenty of time. In the beginning, before man had been chaos, until voices sounded. The cacique hadn't replied immediately. Instead, like a grave and mysterious oracle, he had let a long moment elapse before telling Ventura, whose voice Gregorio had recognized when he heard the question, what hour of the morning it was. 
Around four, the voice of one-eyed Ventura agreed. We have plenty of time, but we have to get moving. Then, small invisible sparks with the same sharp popping logs make in the embrace of a distant fire. The night began to mysteriously crackle in one shadowy corner and then another, wounded by a wind of daggers, at first softly and intermittently, and then cruelly, impetuously, in a lively allegro. Gregorio half closed his eyes, but when he lay back against the ceiba tree, trying to understand what was happening, he couldn't experience again that first sensation he'd had in the time of chaos. The bitter, seductive enchantment had disappeared, the spell had been broken, and now everything was completely different. There was nothing of the immense void that had assailed him, that solid sensation of a night so tremendously nocturnal that nothing else existed, the uneasy yearning that came along with it. Night, shadows, resounding emptiness, just like before. Impenetrable blackness, yes. But now, without the anxiety he'd felt a few minutes ago, for the nice negation of color, its strange absence of living things, had suddenly become human, suddenly harbored monstrously human things that had forever disrupted the presence of that nameless, deep, essential, and serious something he was on the verge of apprehending, which now slipped hopelessly away. The soft noise that robbed the night of all its unprecedented depth and absolute colorlessness was only the pattering of small stones and bits of dried clay the men were throwing onto the withered ferns that lined the river up to its nearest bend to drive the fish out of hiding and into the current. Hearing it, Gregorio sensed that the solitude wasn't empty, but rather turbid and mysteriously inhabited. This strange and contradictory fact was what had broken the spell, the indefinable anguish sensation he tried in vain to summon again. En el principio había sido el caos, mas de pronto aquel lacerante sortilegio se disipó y la vida se hizo, la atroz vida humana. Han de ser por ahí de las cuatro, repuso la voz de uno de los caciques. Nos queda tiempo de sobra. En el principio había sido el caos, antes del hombre, hasta que las voces se escucharon. La respuesta del cacique no fue inmediata, sino que se hizo un gran espacio de silencio como oráculo misterioso y grave, para decir la aventura de quien Gregorio reconoció la voz al escuchar la pregunta, las horas que eran en esos momentos de la madrugada. La voz del tuerto Ventura aprobó, por ahí de las cuatro. Nos queda tiempo de sobra, pero hay que darse prisa. Entonces, como si lanzase pequeñas chispas invisibles desde alguna remota hoguera, el mismo breve y menudo estallar de los troncos lejanos al abrazo de un fuego igualmente lejano? La noche produjo en uno y otro sitio, en uno y otro rincón de las tinieblas, un extraño rumor de misterios, de misteriosas crepitaciones, herida aquí y allá por un viento de puñales, primero dulce y espaciadamente, y después en un alegro, cruel, impetuoso y joven. Gregorio entrecerró los ojos, pero ya no pudo experimentar nuevamente aquella otra sensación del principio, en el tiempo del caos. Cuando se recostara en el tronco de la ceiba desde la cual intentaba comprender cuánto ocurría. El amargo y seductor hechizo había desaparecido. El sortilejo se había disipado y ahora todo era un ex en extremo diferente. De ninguna manera aquel inmenso vacío y aquella sensación sólida de que la noche era tremendamente nocturna 
al grado de no existir sino ella, y que lo que asoltó unida a quién sabe qué anhelo lleno de inquietud. Noche, tinieblas, rotundo vacío, todo igual, lo negro y lo impermeable. Sí, pero distinto, sin aquella ansiedad de hace unos minutos, puesto que esta negación del color, esa insólita ausencia de cosas vivas, de la noche, de pronto se había vuelto humana. De pronto abrigaba cosas monstruosamente humanas que habían roto para siempre la presencia de algo sin nombre, profundo, esencial y grave que estuvo a punto de aprender y que hoy escapaba sin remedio. Sin embargo, el rumor que arrebataba a la noche todo lo inéditamente nocturno y todo lo en absoluto falto de color no era otra cosa que un cierto murmullo provocado por los hombres al arrojar sobre los helechos marchitos que abandonaba el río en su más próximo recodo pequeñas piedras y trozos de barro seco a fin de que los peces escondidos se animasen a huir hacia la corriente. Este asombroso hecho contradictorio de no estar sola la soledad, sino turbia y misteriosamente habitada, era lo que había disipado el sortilegio, la indefinible sensación llena de angustia que ahora Gregorio intentaba reproducir en vano. Las calladas sombras de los pescadores se movían junto a la orilla con lentitud y tranquilidad, pero como si tratasen, aparte, algún motivo supersticioso de no, de no dar rienda suelta a su codicia, ya que le tenían de antemano asegurada su satisfacción. No eran como otros pescadores que cifran su fortuna, a veces tan solo en el azar. Sus movimientos eran graves y contenidos, y con la lentitud que, a pesar de todo, o quizá a causa de serlo tanto, no puede ocultar un anhelo confiado, jubiloso, estremecidamente secreto, y que parece anticiparse al goce de la posesión. I think I went over one paragraph extra that you did, sorry. A bonus, a bonus paragraph. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, thank you both so much. Uh, the book is Earthly Days by Jose Revueltas, and our guests today have been Matt Gleason and Pedro Jimenez. Thank you both so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, this has been wonderful. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon. I see.